Okay, good morning, you all. I'm a preacher, not a teacher, so I don't like to sit down. I'm going to stand up with this makeshift podium here. Um, my dad was under the weather last night, and I just decided to step in this morning. I did not want to take away from what he has studied and ready to share with you. I know you all are going through the book of Romans. We're going to take a break from that, and um, the message I want to deliver this morning necessitates that I come back next week and finish it up. So, I was laying awake in bed last night, just kind of thinking about some things, and the Lord laid this on my heart, and I think it's a worthy pause here in the book of Romans, which is a very doctrinal book. The uh, book of Romans was a missionary letter, and encapsulated within that is doctrine, important doctrine. That's the foundation of our faith, and if we don't handle that doctrine correctly, if we don't handle God's Word correctly, we get into a lot of trouble. So I want to pause as you all are in the midst of some intense doctrine here in the book of Romans and just emphasize that it's the need for us to handle God's Word properly. Because there's a proper way to handle it and there's an improper way to handle it. I brought a prop in this morning. This is a samurai sword. Um, my parents gave me this sword back in 94, October, when I earned my... Shodan rank black belt in Karakata. Since then, I've attained a third degree in that style and a fourth degree in Teashi Kido. Martial arts has been a big part of my life for uh, many years. Um, and engraved on this sword was Second Timothy 4.7. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And the Christian life is often... Uh, uh, described as, a, as warfare. Paul describes it as a warfare. It talks about the soldier uh, and um, in, in the pastoral epistles and talks about the Christian life as fighting a good fight. And to fight a good fight necessitates a weapon, a sturdy weapon. And that weapon that we have is the Word of God. It's the one weapon in that armor that has offensive and defensive characteristics. The other, the other parts of that armor are defensive. But we've got to handle this weapon properly. Now this sword here, this is not a double-edged sword like the Bible is described. But if I don't handle this sword properly, I could really hurt myself. There's a proper way to hold it. There's a proper, proper way to deflect with it. There's a proper way to stab or to cut with it. There's a proper way to sheathe it, to unsheathe it. Um, and if I don't handle it properly, I could get into a lot of trouble. I could hurt myself. The same is true with martial arts. As I said, that's been a part of my uh, life for many years. And some have looked at that, you know, how can you be a Christian and be a part of something like that? And assuming that martial arts, particularly um, that out of Japan, is, is rooted in, you know, false religion and Buddhist mysticism. And obviously there's some of that, but much of martial arts comes out of Japan. And what I've studied comes out of Okinawa, which used to be its own kingdom and the Japanese have been atheists for centuries so it's not like there was anything religious going on unfortunately like anything else people take it and um, and uh, corrupt it as, as some of the Chinese uh, styles have done by uh, mixing in uh, their religion with that but um, as with the sword martial arts has to be handled correctly and, and if not it can get you into a lot of trouble Okay, study, 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 improve, 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 improve. And through all those years, I've learned that the proper way is to use restraint. Uh, many a times, uh, I've been under physical duress and could have used uh, the opportunity to defend myself or to harm someone else. But the proper wielding of that knowledge uh, uh, constrained me uh, to not act in self-defense and of course you know Jesus Christ is the greatest example of that um, having all the power in the world yet chose not to defend himself and to understand these things is what allows me to wield that training properly and the same thing would apply to God's word God's word like that um, is, is described as a sword and unlike that samurai sword it's double-edged so it's more dangerous um, I wouldn't hold that sword by the blade if I were going to go into a fight. I'd hold it by the handle. You wouldn't hold God's Word by part of it. You'd hold it by the whole. There's a proper way to handle it, a proper way not to. It's a dangerous weapon. And if we misuse it, 
we can get into trouble not only in our own lives, but in, uh, it, it can affect the lives of others as we teach and train them if we don't do it properly. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's a familiar passage. We often uh, stop at that verse and don't go on to read. That's something that can get us in trouble in God's Word. But it describes the Bible as such, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Not only is the Word of God spoken here of as a sword, it's spoken of as a person. A person. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. A person that can see everything in your heart. Therefore, it must be handled carefully. There's not a whole lot of difference between the living Word of God, which is Jesus Christ, and the written Word of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said in John 17, as He prayed for His followers, Sanctify them, Lord, through Thy truth, Thy Word is truth. Well, if Jesus, the living Word is truth, and the Bible, the written Word is truth, then in a sense they are one and the same. The Bible is the revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God encapsulated in human flesh. He was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, in human form, encapsulating all that is in God's Word, living it out without sin. Perfect obedience to what is here. So in a sense, it's one and the same. You cannot know and love the living Word if you don't know and love the written Word. I truly believe that. And I believe that at the heart of everything in our faith, it's not the cross. It's not the resurrection of Christ. It's not the existence of God. I believe the fulcrum of everything that we believe and teach, at the heart of it all, is the Word of God. The authority of God's Word. Because the Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11. And what is faith? At the heart of faith is taking God at His Word. To have faith in God is to believe that what God has said or revealed about Himself is true. So if we don't believe that, then how can we truly have faith in Him? How can we truly believe in what Christ did for us on the cross? Take the Bible out of the equation and you have nothing. You have nothing. So at the heart, the fulcrum of all things, I believe, is the Word of God and its authority. Either God's Word is authoritative in all matters of faith and practice, or it's just another man-made book to be thrown on the trash heap of the religious text of the world of history. I find it funny when I go out and, and preach on the streets and I often run into people that come up against the preaching of the Word, many who would claim to be Christians. You know, we call them yeah buts because they come up and they'll be like, well, you know, I agree with what you're saying, but the way you're doing it or the way you're saying it. And in discussing these things, they reflect a profound ignorance of the Word of God. And it may appear to be something simple, something that's a mere matter of disagreement, but like drawing poison from a wound, you can often draw out what the problem or the heart of the problem is. And it basically is rooted in disbelief in God's Word. I was talking to a woman on the campus of Boise State University. She walked by and I offered her a tract. I said, ma'am, can I give you a gospel tract? She responded very virulently, very angrily, um, judge not that you be not judged. I said, well, ma'am, I'm just offering you a gospel tract. I'm not judging you. Well, she came back later. I didn't know it was the same woman. Again, I offered the lady a tract. She responded, I've got my own way. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. She turned around and got in my face, claimed to be a Christian, all of this stuff about you know forcing your religion on people and all this. And So I began to talk to her. Eventually, I pulled it out. Eventually, I sucked it out like poison from a wound. She said, you can't believe everything the Bible says. It's just written by men. And therein was the heart of her problem. That was the heart of her problem. She was no Christian. You can't be a Christian and deny the authority of God's Word. Period. End of discussion. I'm preaching in here now. (laughs) 
the Bible was written by men. That's what we'll hear. A lot of times that's what's taught in the churches. It's what the young people are led to believe. And people don't take a stand on the Word of God anymore, much less handle it properly, wield it properly. The Bible says in John 17, 17, Jesus said, Thy Word is truth. 2 Timothy. It's another one of those. We like to take verse 16 and forget about what's sandwiched around it. In verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, Timothy knew the Scriptures as a child. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, All Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration of God. Now, Paul's not talking about some original manuscripts there. He's talking about the same Scriptures that... Timothy knew as a child, which were a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and perhaps a translation of a translation, but God had preserved it. And it was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is important. You can't be obedient. You can't live for the Lord and throw out what God calls inspired and profitable for all things. James 1.21 speaks of the Bible as the engrafted word. That means it was engrafted, it was settled, immutable. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Romans, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if Faith is tied to hearing, and hearing is tied to the Word of God, and faith is tied to the Word of God. Without it, you can't have faith in Christ or even understand who He is. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter recalls seeing the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. But he, and he appeals to his eyewitness testimony, but then he goes to say that we have a more sure word of prophecy. Something that's more sure than even my own eyewitness testimony. That's the Scriptures. That's the Scriptures. He says there at the end of chapter 1, there are no Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's more sure than eyewitness testimony according to God's Word. So the Bible is a sword, a double-edged sword. It's an offensive and a defensive weapon. It can be wielded properly. It can be wielded improperly. It's dangerous. It's powerful. It can discern even the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we need to ask ourselves, particularly as we're studying such an important book as Romans in here, how can you properly handle God's Word? Or how are we to properly handle it, interpret it, teach it, understand it? And how can we improperly use it? Well, today, I want to talk about the improper wielding of God's Word. And next week, that necessitates me sharing with you how to properly handle God's Word. How to properly interpret it, understand it, read it, and apply it. So, I just kind of thinking through this last night, I basically came up with five ways that we are guilty of mishandling God's Word and we need to repent of these things and we need to forsake them and we need to separate ourselves from those that do these things. And this is a downward spiral. It starts out subtle. It starts out seemingly no big deal. And what it leads to is eternal damnation. It's a downward spiral. Just like in the period of the judges in Israel, it started out with a little disobedience. God raised up a judge here, beginning with Othniel. And then it went down the line. Israel would further decline into worse sin and idolatry. And God would continue to raise up judges all the way until the days of Samson and Samuel. And Israel would continue on a downward spiral to delve into deeper sin and deeper turning from God. We have to protect ourselves from this. The first way that we improperly handle God's Word is to ignore it. Now that word ignore and the word ignorance come from the same Latin root. So we often don't associate those two words together. So we talk about people being ignorant 
of things. What the heart of ignorance is the verb to ignore. So, ignorance is not necessarily accidental. There's an element of willfulness to it. Especially in a nation like America. If there's an ignorance of God's Word, it's willful ignorance. It's because men choose to ignore it. Because it's in our culture. It's in our history. It's in the words and documents of our founding fathers. It's been on the corners and proclaimed from churches for years as opposed to nations that have never heard the Word of God. So at the heart of, of ignorance by nature is a willfulness. The first thing we can do is ignore the Word of God. For the immature Christian, this may be unintentional. But for many, it's willful. Jesus attacked the Sadducees for this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. He said, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. You see, the Sadducees taught that there was no resurrection. There was no spirit. There were no angels. And Jesus rebuked them. He said, you err. You're ignorant of the Scriptures. And then he referred to Exodus chapter 3 when God was speaking to Moses um, out of the burning bush. Moses said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus said, God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. If there's no resurrection, then God's statement there makes no sense. But their ignorance of the Scriptures led to their misunderstanding and their false teaching. James calls ignoring the Word of God, he describes it as forgetful hearers. Those that ignore the Word of God are forgetful hearers. They hear the Word of God, but they don't do it. At the root of this improper wielding, I believe, is ignorance, as I've said. Willful ignorance. The fruit of our ignorance of God's Word is error. Jesus said you do err not knowing the Scripture. Oftentimes, hypocrisy... We claim to be something, but we're ignorant of God's Word, so we're not living it. We're hearers of the Word and not doers of the Word. That's hypocrisy. Carnality, that's worldliness. Paul spoke to the Corinthians as being carnal, immature, unable to digest the meat of God's Word because they'd ignored it and could only digest the milk. We don't need to be milk Christians. We need to be able to digest the meat. And if there's something here in God's Word that makes us uncomfortable... The improper way to deal with it is to ignore it. The proper way is to face it, to believe it, and to change if if need be. What's the remedy for our ignorance of God's Word? Well, James tells us in chapter 1, verse uh, 22 through 25, he says, Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in the glass. In other words, he's like somebody looking at themselves in the mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, when we look at ourselves in the mirror trying to fix our hair, fix our makeup, we often have to go back numerous times. Because we leave and we forget. Or if we're popping a zit or something like that, we don't know if we got it, so we've got to go back because we forget what we've just seen. It's the th- same thing with God's Word. If we're only hearers or readers and not doers, then we'll forget what we've read. We'll forget what God's Word says and we'll be ignorant of it and thereby guilty of ignoring it. James 1, 22 through 25. Let me read verse 25. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. One thing that frustrates me a lot in my personal studies of the Scriptures is that I seem to read and it seems as if God speaks. But then a mere hours later, I can't even recall what I've read. It's very frustrating. And in studying God's Word and coming across this passage, I realized there's a secret to retaining what we've read. The secret to retaining what we've read is to do. To make a conscious effort to do what, exactly what we've read about this morning. So if God's Word in our personal reading talks to us about trusting Him for our provision, then we need to make an effort that day to do that. When something comes up and it costs a lot of money instead of fretting, well, you know what? I'm going to trust God for His provision. So the secret 
to remembering what we've read, I believe, is to do it. Because if we just read it, it's like looking in a mirror. We forget the reflection. We forget what we look like. We've got to go back again. If we're not practicing God's Word, then we're just going to keep forgetting what we read and we've got to keep going back and doing it and doing it again. And I speak to you as one guilty of this. I can read passages of Scripture time and time again and then forget what I've read. We need to be doers of the Word. And that's the remedy for our ignorance of it. What are some examples today of ignoring God's Word? Anybody having a suggestion, something that is an example in modern day churchianity of ignorance of God's Word and therefore error? You know, the Sadducees denied the resurrection because they were ignorant of God's Word. I can think of a couple off the top of my head. The idea that evangelism is to be about building relationships and not the proclamation of God's Word. That's a reflection of ignorance of God's Word. How can you teach that and know God's Word? Because that's nowhere in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us to preach the Gospel and to make sure our life demonstrates the words that we preach. I think a big one is taking the promises of God that are eternally spoken and trying to apply them everyday life, like God you know, promises healing, or God promises our, you know, we'll take care of us, and we, you know, the church is taking that twist and into God, you know, promises that He's going to heal your disease, or right. He's going to give you money, or He's going to give you a car, and when, when we need to look at those promises as eternal, that all that will come, you know, yes, God may do that, and He's very capable of doing it, but those promises are the eternal promises of God. And when we pass from this life into the next, those promises will be fulfilled then. That's right. What those the idea of preaching without words, that reflects ignorance. Our understanding of the family in the church today reflects a lot of ignorance. God's Word teaches us that children are a blessing. But we've been led to believe that they're an inconvenience and they're a hindrance to us. That's ignorance of God's Word. Subject of debt. We've been led to believe that that's a necessary part of our culture when God's Word says, owe to man nothing but to love one another and that the borrower is servant to the lender. Our, the way we run up credit card debt and go into debt over vehicles and all this stuff, it's a reflection, I believe, of our ignorance of God's Word. Immodesty amongst women in the church, a lot of it's rooted in ignorance. Some of it's willful, but much of it's rooted in ignorance because we're unaware of God's Word. God tells women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. But it's never taught and people are ignorant. And as a result, it leads to error, worldliness, and immaturity. Another way we can mishandle God's Word is to ration it. With this book, from beginning to end, we have a wellspring of wisdom, a feast, a banqueting table full of all good fruits and meats to nourish us. And when we ration these things and only sample a small part or fail to embrace or proclaim the whole counsel of God, we get into trouble. You know, take the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Many people believe or claim that there's a tension there. They ration God's Word. They cast aside what God has to say in the Old Testament and stick completely in the New Testament, failing to understand that it's all one. Failing to understand that Christ Jesus is enfolded in the Old Testament, unfolded into new. Failing to see that Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Old Testament. Every single book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, is quoted from in the New Testament. Failing to see that God's Word is one without contradiction, in perfect harmony. That's rationing God's Word. Paul speaks of this, I believe, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <coughs> Turn it here. Chapter 4, verse 2. He says this. I'll start at verse 1. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now Paul was talking to the Corinthian church 
who was plagued by division, disunity, sin in the body, things that Paul dealt with in his first letter. People in the church saying, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. And all of these divisions. Failure to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And Paul spoke of this as handling the Word of God deceitfully. Over and against what he had done, which was to manifest the truth. To ration God's Word is to fail to teach all of it. To ignore parts of it. And to only teach certain aspects. To fall short of the whole counsel of God. Satan was guilty of this. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted, Satan approached Jesus and tempted his flesh because he was hungry and said, you know, why don't you just turn these stones to bread? That song by Michael Jackson years ago, We Are the World, says that he turned the stones to bread. He didn't turn the stones to bread. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus used the Scriptures to fight temptation. Therein lies a great truth that we should embrace. So Satan took up that same sword and attempted to use it against Christ. He tried to use the Word of God deceitfully. The second time he tempted Christ there in Matthew, and it's the third time in Luke, the order's not important, it's what's being taught. Satan quoted from Psalm 91. Took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, Leap off of you, because it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee. They'll bear thee up lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus responded by saying, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord our God. You see, Satan rationed God's Word. He took one part of God's Word and tried to apply it to a situation that was covered by a greater truth than God's Word. Not to tempt God. It's interesting that he left out a phrase found in Psalm 91. He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Whose ways? God's ways. As you walk in God's ways, He will give His angels charge over thee. But what Satan was asking Christ to do was not God's way. It was tempting Him. Satan rationed God's Word through craftiness. Deception. That's the root of this. Dissimulation. Dissimulation means to conceal something when you know it to be true. How many of our preachers behind our pulpits today dissimulate God's Word? Just like Barnabas... At Galatia, Paul talked about Peter coming to visit. Now, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when the Jews came up from Jerusalem, he separated himself and acted like he wasn't fellowshipping with the Gentiles and stayed with the Jews. And Paul says, insomuch that even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. Their dissimulation was their concealing of what they knew to be true. The church is Jew and Gentile. And acting as if they had to separate themselves from the Gentiles. And Paul rebuked Peter to the face for that. But at the root of rationing God's Word is dissimulation. Why do we dissimulate? Why do we conceal? Oftentimes we're fearful. It's the fear of man. Now that certainly wasn't the case with Satan there. He was fearful of no man. But oftentimes we ration God's Word because we fear the response of men. What is the fruit of such rationing? Well, it's obviously sin. We're not teaching the whole counsel of God. We're living in sin. Sins of omission what we're not doing that we should be, and sins of commission, what we are doing and shouldn't be. If we don't know the whole counsel of God, how can we live in obedience to Him? As we're called to do, being blood-bought through the blood of Jesus Christ. What's the remedy? The fruit is sin, deception, a life of disobedience. What's the remedy for the rationing of God's Word? Well, Paul says it right here. He contrasts what... The Corinthians were guilty of with his own ministry. He spoke of them as, of others as handling the Word of God deceitfully as opposed to manifesting the truth. He talked about how nor handling the Word of God deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth. The remedy is to preach the whole counsel of God even when it's uncomfortable. To believe the whole counsel of God even when it's uncomfortable. To let our love for others be without dissimulation. The Bible says not to fear men, to fear God. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, let your love for others 
be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. If we hate the evil and love the good like God tells us to do in the book of Amos, then we won't ration God's Word because we won't fear men. We'll love them enough to tell them the truth even if they hate us for it. Paul's example, he again speaks of in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders. He said, I shunned not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He told them everything. That's what we need to be in our Christian lives as we witness to others, as we exhort one another in the body of Christ, and as we teach others. For those of us that have been called to lead the church. What verse is that? Acts chapter 20, verse 27. We can ration, we can, uh, we can, uh, the, a remedy for rationing God's Word is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Not to rip things out of context. To take a closer look. To let the clear passages of Scripture define and interpret that which is obscure. In Romans, the end of Romans, Paul speaks of Phoebe, a servant of the church. The word there is diakonos, which means servant. Well, a lot of people look at that and say, well, she was a deacon. There were female deacons in the church because Paul talks about Phoebe, a deaconess of the church. Well, my friends, in 1 Timothy... We're told that the deacons must be the husbands of one wife. Now, no, God's Word's not sanctioning lesbianism. Romans chapter 1 is clear on that. So the deacons must be the husbands of one wife. Therefore, a woman can't be a deacon. So that's very clear. So how do we interpret Romans 16? Simple. Just like the King James translators did. That word means servant. She was a servant of the church. It doesn't mean an office. There's no office in the context. We've interpreted Scripture with Scripture. There's many other examples of that. I'm going to talk a little bit about more about that, how to properly do that next week. Some examples today of improper rationing of Scripture instead of partaking of the fullness, rationing it. People talk about being filled with the Spirit. All kinds of crazy stuff in these churches about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. Rationing Second Corinthians or rationing uh, Ephesians five eighteen, letting it stand alone. Be filled with the Spirit. Rationing Acts chapter two, and trying to find what that look like looks like, but ignoring the whole counsel of God's word. Acts chapter four verse thirty one tells us exactly what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And they prayed, and the house where they prayed was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There's the definition right there. If you ration Ephesians 5 and Acts chapter 2, you're going to think that you've got to speak with tongues or act crazy or dance or whatever people say. All the time ignoring the whole counsel of God's Word which defines filling of the Spirit as being a bold witness for Jesus Christ. You know, people make a big deal in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some people do about women wearing head coverings in church. Some of that's cultural and some of that's personal conviction. And that's fine. I respect that. But when you try to project that on other people and make the Word of God say something it doesn't say, you're rationing God's Word. You're taking one passage and not reading beyond in the context where Paul says that God has given women their hair as a covering. So if their hair is a covering and they're to be covered, then why do you need a second covering? It's just an example of taking one passage and not continuing to read. You know, talking about those things, Paul says in that passage, judge in yourselves. And then he goes on to say, but if any man be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Well, when you put all that together, we're not talking about a legalistic requirement for women. We're not talking about that at all. But you get into trouble like that when you ration the Scripture and take it out of context. You know, it talks about women wearing modest apparel in 1 Timothy 2 and and uh, over in 1 Peter 3, and sometimes people take that to mean it's a sin if you wear an earring or if you wear a necklace or if you wear gold. Well, if Paul is stating it strictly like that, then he means for women to be naked. Because it says there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, this is just an example um, of how people ration the Word of God. It says here in 1 Peter 3, verse 3, it says, talking about godly women, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel. 
So if he's saying you should never wear anything gold, he's also saying you shouldn't wear clothes. So obviously, he's talking about your modesty and your sobriety being the front runner over and above what you wear and what you adorn yourself with. So we've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We cannot ration it. A lot of times we ration Scripture by what we don't say. We may believe it, but we don't say it. I was reading some really old Baptist creeds that go back to 1700s, even further back than that. And a big part of a lot of those Baptist creeds when talking about the church was to make it very clear that Roman Catholicism was not the church, the Pope was not the head of the church, and he is the spirit of Antichrist. I find it interesting that in, this, in the 20th century, the Baptist creeds have dropped those statements particularly the Southern Baptist faith, life, faith and message, never had that in there. Why? We don't want to say that because that's offensive. We don't have the guts to say Catholics aren't Christians. They're not. Ask a priest. He'll say it plain out. I go running uh, uh, every few days a week. That's probably why I've never, I'm not been able to get over this sickness for a while because I continue to run in the cold. It's my own fault. But there's a... Uh, a home that I run by and there's a sign out there and it's advertising this um, uh, uh, crusade that the Catholic Church is doing called Catholics Come Home. And what it's designed to do is to get people that are part of churches that are separate from Catholicism to come back to their Holy Mother. And it says on that sign, we're Catholic. It doesn't say we're Christian. It says we're Catholic. Come home. Well, those of us that won't see it for what it is and ration God's Word, we'll be sucked into that. We'll be sucked to the point like some of these so-called Bible teachers who will partner with Catholics who preach a different gospel to just go right along and think that we're one and the same when we're not according to the whole counsel of God's Word. We can't ration it. We can't ignore it. The third way we can mishandle, and this gets progressively worse, rationing and ignoring it happens a lot on a personal level and can be the fruit of weak discipleship. But as we go down this spiral, mishandling of the Word of God begins to primarily focus on those that teach it. And when you teach it wrongly, you deceive others and you bring others into your error. That's why it's more dangerous. It says there in the New Testament, I think it's in, I think it's in the book of James, it says, be not many teachers or many masters, for we will receive the greater condemnation. So your, your judgment is greater when you not only embrace error yourself, but you lead others to embrace it. That's why we need to be very careful what we teach. And in this next, uh, um, mishandling of God's Word, we teachers need to be very careful. We are not to ignore God's Word. We're not to ration it. Another way to mishandle it is to corrupt it. To corrupt it. Or to change it. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. You know, just before he talks about handling it deceitfully, he says, For we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So Paul spoke of those that corrupt the Word of God. Now there's a bit of a connotation there in that word corrupt when you look at the original language that implies profiteering or corrupting it for gain, for profiteering, to benefit us. We see some of that in Genesis chapter 3. The first one to corrupt God's Word was both Satan and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Satan says, Yea, God hath said not to eat of every tree of the garden. Eve corrupted God's Word by adding to it. She said, Yeah, God said we cannot eat it, neither can we touch it. God never said don't touch it. He said don't eat it. So she made the mistake of adding to God's Word. And then Satan went and changed God's Word, which you know Eve did too. She added to it, but Satan took away from it. He said, Yeah, God said that. But he didn't mean you would really die. What he meant was you would be like him, like a god. Being able to discern good from evil. Now, to me, that sounds very similar to what I heard time and time again 
in the college or the seminary classroom. Well, God's Word says this, but the original Greek or a better translation actually means this. And then it would be something totally contrary to what God's Word was saying. That's corrupting the Word of God. And we have to be careful of that. Those that corrupt the Word of God corrupt it in places. Oftentimes it seems not that big of a deal. Or it seems a matter whereby Christians can legitimately disagree. That's dangerous. Because when you begin to corrupt the Word of God in places, we'll see later that you rest it in its entirety. That's dangerous. At the root of corrupting God's Word is pride. Humanism. Putting man above God and thinking we have a better way to teach the truth of God than God Himself. That takes on many different forms. I won't get into it. Jude speaks of it as the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the gainsaying of Korah. These were all men in the Old Testament who thought they had a better way to carry out the things of God than what God had clearly revealed. They corrupted God's Word. Cain thought, why can't I just offer sacrifice to the fruit of the ground? God should accept that. He corrupted the Word of God. God required a blood sacrifice. And He obviously had taught them that because it says in Hebrews 11 that Abel offered a lamb by faith. Balaam was like, well, I want to get paid. I want to do what Balak is telling me to do. I know I can't curse Israel because God's Word is clear, but I do know that if they rebel against God, God will punish them. So let's tempt them to sin. Then God will have to punish him. Corrupting the Word of God, thinking he had a better way. And then Korah, well, you know, why should Moses and Aaron be the leaders? We're just as capable of leading God's people. We have just as much spiritual discernment. Why, why shouldn't we be the leaders? Corrupting what God had clearly revealed, and as a result, the earth swallowed them up. They went straight to hell. They bypassed the grave and went straight to hell in the heart of the earth. Pride, humanism. Jude says in talking about Cain and Balaam and Korah and these false teachers that corrupt the Word of God, he speaks of it as what they know naturally as brute beast. What we try to do naturally, apart from the power of God and the Spirit of God, when we try to figure out how God preserved His Word and can't accept that He's a sovereign God, a powerful God that can preserve His Word exactly as He wants us to have it, despite the failures of men, we try to figure things out from a scientific standpoint, instead of what God has revealed, we end up corrupting the Word of God. That's why men teach that a day in Genesis chapter 1 is not a real day. Because they can't believe it. Because they believe the teachings of science about the age of the earth, which don't even agree with observable scientific evidence anyway. It's corrupting the Word of God. What's the fruit of the corruption of God's Word? Well, it's discord and disunity in the body of Christ. We saw that at Corinth. Discord and disunity in diverse teachings. And Paul was rebuking that. And he reminded the Corinthians in his, in his second epistle that we didn't corrupt the Word of God like others did. We told you the truth. Leads to confusion. And it ultimately leads to false religion. When God's Word is corrupted, our religion becomes false. And unable to save us from our sins. Corrupting the Word of God is subtle. It happens in places. And if we're not careful and we won't repent of our guilt in this matter, we could find ourselves preaching and teaching things that are so off base that we're leading people to hell instead of to Jesus Christ. I think we see some of this today. I'm not going to get off on a tangent here. We see this with all the Bible versions out here today. Corrupting the Word of God. And the connotation there is for profiteering or greed. Well, what's all that about anyway? You know, you get you a copyright. You make a new translation of the Bible. You profit off of that. Your copyright law requires that something new in terms of a Bible translation must be different by a certain percentage from anything previous. So when you got the new latest translation come out, the changes are there primarily to get the copyright and therefore to get the moolah, the money. But the Word of God has been subtly changed. There may have been honest motives at time in this. I doubt it. Even if the motive of all the modern Bible translators was to make the Bible easier to understand so that more people would read it, believe it, understand it, and come to Christ, that didn't take place. 
hundred years ago, we had a standard authorized English Bible that was brought to these shores that was believed and through which God wrought great revival, not only here but in Europe as well, that was translated and taken to the far ends of the earth, having been preserved down through the centuries on the blood of the martyrs. But we decided we needed to fix it, to correct it. And now you've got so many Bible versions and translations in a store, you don't even know where to begin. And at the same time, you've got an ignorance and a confusion about the Bible that far exceeds anything that's ever existed in our culture. So if the motive was pure, it certainly didn't play out. Because God's Word has been subtly corrupted. I make no apologies for this. You can read about it on my website. I don't preach this. But I have written about it and I do believe it. I believe God's preserved His Word perfectly in the English language. I believe we can see that and experience that in the authorized King James Bible. And I take great joy to say that in this the 400th year anniversary of God's giving this Bible to the world in the English language in a language He knew would be the international language of the end times. A product of faithful martyrs and translators down through the centuries who, unlike the Catholic Church, did not desire to corrupt the Word of God, but to preserve it. I'm grateful for that. If it isn't broken, why do we need to fix it? I believe the King James in the English language is the Word of God. All the others might contain the Word of God to some extent, some to more extent than others. But why take a butter knife in the battle when you can take a double-edged broadsword? That's all I'm going to say about that. It's funny that many people cleave to the New King James Version. and I do believe that it's the best out of all the modern ones. But there's subtle corruption of God's Word in there. Jesus said in Matthew 7.14 that narrow is the way that leads to life. The New King James says difficult is the way that leads to life. The religions of this world are difficult. They're bondage. But not Jesus Christ. That's subtle corruption, I believe. It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not consider it robbery to be considered equal with God. The New King James says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. My friends, those are two totally different teachings. And that's not what the Greek says. It's not. It's corruption. If we see it, we know it, we should flee from it. The shoe fits where? I know it doesn't fit in here. But praise God for His preserved Word. Faith without repentance is a result of the corruption of God's Word. We speak about asking Jesus into our heart with no talk or discussion of repentance. That's the result of corrupting God's Word. Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The sinner's prayer. Yes, asking Christ into our life. Repenting and trusting Him is as simple as a prayer. But we've made the prayer itself a ritual that de facto... Um, translates into eternal life. That's corrupting God's Word. The prayers of those that harbor iniquity in their heart are an abomination to God. So that sinner's prayer when one harbors iniquity and is unwilling to repent of their sins is an abomination to God. Once saved, always saved. That's preached a lot in the, in the Baptist churches as an excuse to sin. It's corruption of God's Word. I don't believe in once saved, always saved as an excuse to sin. Hear me now. I believe in the security of the believer as comfort for those struggling to serve God in days of trouble. And I believe the proof of the believer's security is in the fruit he bears in his life. Yes, God has to save us. Salvation is of the Lord. I don't budge on that. Salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord to save us. It's of the Lord to keep us. It's of the Lord to glorify us. And those that have been genuinely saved will persevere. But they won't persevere in sinful lifestyles. A lot of times it's once saved, always saved. Well, it's no big deal. You know, you're once saved, always saved. I don't know how many times I hear that on the street from people living in open sin as if they're proud of it. That's corrupting the Word of God. The Bible doesn't teach once saved, always saved as an excuse to sin. It teaches the perseverance of the believer empowered by God to work righteousness, predestined unto sanctification and bearing fruit 
As Christians, the corruption of God's Word has led to us using words that shouldn't even be in our vocabulary. Homosexual. That shouldn't even be in our vocabulary. That's an evolutionary term. That's a term that connotes evolutionary processes whereby some people are genetically disposed to a heterosexual lifestyle and others are genetically disposed to a homosexual lifestyle. That's not true. That's a lie. And that word homosexual by its very nature implies evolution. That shouldn't even be in our vocabulary. God calls it sodomy. He calls it vile. He calls it unnatural. But yet, you've got Bibles that put that word in there. When the Bible calls it abusers of themselves with mankind and effeminate. All this effeminates out here amongst these young men wearing girls' jeans and acting like girls. That's abomination to God. I believe that. Amen. The effeminate will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6. The abusers of themselves with mankind. These are willful sins that go against the conscience God has given us. And they're not genetic dispositions like that word homosexuality implies. We, don't, we shouldn't even use that word. It's sodomy. How many other words are in our vocabulary that are a result of misunderstanding, mishandling God's Word? And we shouldn't even really use. I mean, unfortunately, uh, uh, some things are part of our culture. In the Nepali language, the word for God, Ishvar, is a word that doesn't belong in the, in the, in the Christian's vocabulary. And they refuse to use it. Because the connotation is little g-God. They had to actually create a word. In a sense, like Paul did Mars Hill when he said, I noticed this altar to the unknown God. The Nepalis created a word, Parameshwar, which means the God. The word for God in their language doesn't belong in a Christian vocabulary because Jesus and God the Father are not a God amongst gods. It's the God, the true God. So we need to check our vocabulary, the words we're using. Corrupting God's word is a subtle trick. It's a subtle trick used of Satan. But another way we can mishandle it, I know I'm running long, but I just think this stuff's important. We can rest it. That's W-R-E-S-T. Resting God's Word is more open. It's more outright. It's public. Corrupting God's Word is subtle. That's why so many people are deceived. That's why so many people are deceived into believing these things because it sounds good or well, so-and-so has a good heart or he loves the Lord, therefore he can't be wrong. But resting God's Word is the inevitable result of corrupting it, of ignoring it, of rationing it. And it's open. To rest means to violently twist and to pull. To twist and to pull. And Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter 3.16. He says these words. He talks about Paul's epistles being hard to understand. Now, Peter's writing to Jews here. If you go back at um, chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered abroad. That's the Jewish dispersion that had been scattered abroad. He's writing to Jews and he reminds them of Paul. Verse 15, he says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Well, here's the answer right here as to the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Peter refers to Paul writing to you, the Jews, and none of Paul's epistles are written to Jews except for Hebrews. And some people say, well, we can't know who wrote Hebrews. Well, the answer is right there. Paul wrote it. As also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. They rest it. They twist it to their own destruction. Going back to corrupting the Word of God, I talked about how the fruit was discord, confusion, false religion. I forgot to mention the remedy for corrupting God's Word. Its root is in humanism. The remedy is to have faith in God. To have faith in God. Receiving the Scriptures not as the Word of men, but as they are in truth the Word of God. And Paul commended the Thessalonian church for doing that. For receiving these as the Word of God, not the work of men. That's how we remedy corruption of God's Word, is to receive it as God's Word, not the Word of men. But as far as resting the Word of God, 
Those that are unlearned and unstable are those that rest the Word of God. So at the root of resting or the violent twisting and pulling of God's Word to make it say things it doesn't say is those that are unlearned and unstable. James speaks as the, uns- the unstable man is one who is double-minded. Unstable in his, all his ways. He's got a foot in the world and a foot in the church. That's those that rest the Scriptures. They're unstable and unlearned. And the fruit of resting God's Word is destruction. And I mentioned Cain and Balaam and Korah when I talked about corrupting God's Word, but the fruition of that was destruction. Because they corrupted it and then they rested it. Just like false teachers. They rest the Word of God. They take it and twist it and make it say something it doesn't say. It's widespread corruption and private interpretation leads to the resting of God's Word. We see many examples of this today. When I talk to people on the street living in open sin, well, didn't Jesus die for our sins? Well, He died for our sins, so I guess we can live in sin. He's already died for them. That's resting the Scriptures to our own destruction. Because Paul says this, he says, how can we who are dead to sin continue to live there? He says not to use our liberty as a cloak for sin. I've heard people quote Matthew 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged. Forgetting that Jesus very clearly says in John 7.24, Judge righteous judgment. Failing to see that Jesus is speaking of hypocritical judgment and not judgment according to the Word of God. Therefore, they rest those script, that Scripture and, and believe that we should never have an opinion on right or wrong. You can do whatever you want to do. Just don't judge me. That leads to destruction. You know, the favorite parable of the non-Christian is Jesus turning water into wine. Resting that Scripture is an excuse for drunkenness. Leads to destruction. Constant allegorizing of Scripture. I believe we should interpret the Scriptures literally in their context and not to try to spiritualize everything. We see that with a lot of these churches that teach the church has replaced Israel. And they take all those prophecies regarding Israel in the Old Testament, allegorize them and try to apply them to the church. That's resting Scriptures. And what it leads to is destruction. It leads to anti-Semitism like we see in the Presbyterian Church USA who claims that Israel has no right to that land and stands by the Palestinian usurpers. Jesus told, I mean, God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So if allegorizing the Scriptures in many areas leads to anti-Semitism, then that leads to destruction according to God. We allegorize the Scriptures that talk about the coming of Christ. That leads to destruction because it breeds so-called Christians who are not watching and waiting. Like the man who buried the talent in the earth. Resting Scriptures to our own destruction. Well, what's the remedy for that? The remedy is pretty simple and this is what I'm going to talk about next week. We can protect ourselves from resting the Scriptures and by default doing all these other things. We can protect ourselves from ignoring the Scriptures, from rationing them, from corrupting them, and from resting them by doing what Paul told Timothy to do. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And I want to share with you all next week what it means to rightly divide God's Word. It's not enough just to read it. We've got to rightly divide it. We've got to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We've got to approach it in faith as God's Word and not the work of men. That's the remedy. And that's the key to properly wielding this double-edged sword that we have. The final way and the ultimate end of improperly handling God's Word, and I pray God it doesn't apply in here, is to reject it. We can ignore it. We can ration it. God forbid we, particularly those of us that teach the Word of God, can corrupt it. God forbid even more that we would rest it. But oh, please God, may we not reject it. Jesus spoke of rejecting His Word in John chapter 12. And this is the ultimate 
mishandling that precious book. Jesus said in John 12, 47 and 48, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. You see, the Word of God is our judge. It will judge us in the last day. And if we reject it, it will stand against us on the day of judgment. The root of rejecting God's Word is rebellion and unbelief. Many that claim to be Christians are rebellious at heart, governed by unbelief, and have rejected God's Word. They're like dogs going back to their vomit. Like pigs that have been washed going back to wallowing in the mire. Peter speaks of that. The fruit of rejecting God's Word is eternal judgment. Eternal judgment for which there is no remedy in the life to come. But there is a remedy for rejecting God's Word today. If we've rejected it in our lives, or if we know those that are rejecting it, there is a remedy. That remedy is very clearly spoken of in Isaiah chapter 66. We can tremble before the Word of God. The remedy for our unbelief and our rebellion, our rejecting of God's revelation, is to humble ourselves and tremble before it. Not to take lightly what God has revealed. The Bible speaks of lightly esteeming the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. We can also lightly esteem the Word of God. And that leads to all these errors I've spoken of. But it says here in Isaiah 66 verse 2, For all those things hath my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And then he goes on to speak about religion. You know, you're doing all of these things. You know, sacrificing animals and you might as well be cutting off a dog's neck. Because it's empty. You've chosen your own ways. And it's abomination. God speaks of false religion here. Religious ritual. In verse 3 and 4. But then in verse 5 he says again, Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at His word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for My name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified that He shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. The remedy for rejecting God's Word is to tremble before it in humility. To believe it and to live it. I've often heard this little cliche spoken. Read God's Word to be wise. Believe God's Word to be safe. Practice God's Word to be holy. Sounds kind of cheesy, but it's true. Tremble before the Word of God. Approach it in sincerity. Approach it as more important than the things of this life. I've often been guilty of putting my physical exercise above the spiritual exercise in God's Word. and The Lord says that bodily exercise only profits a little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Today we see the fruit of people rejecting the Word of God and it's summed up in this simple statement. I've heard it so many times on the street that I just come to expect it. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. But the Bible's just a book. Any man that can say that has rejected the Word of God He is in danger of eternal damnation in hell. And he needs to repent and tremble before that word. Wow, I've gone for a long time. I'm losing my voice. But I think these things are key as we study God's word exegetically in here, which you guys have been doing, particularly in the book of Romans. We need to know how people mishandle the word of God and how to properly handle it. So I'm going to come back next week. I want to just share... A few things about properly handling the Word of God. How to make sure that we take a closer look. That we interpret Scripture with Scripture. That we mind the context. And that we approach God's Word with an attitude of faith. 
believing from the start that it's perfect and without error. And not doubting what God has said to be true because that, my friends, is the essence of faith. And wielding God's sword properly will allow us to better understand His Word as we exegetically open it up here in this church. So, I hope that was a blessing to you. I didn't intend to preach this until last night. And the Lord gave this to me as I laid awake in bed. So, that being the case, I was a little aggravated. I couldn't sleep, but now I'm thankful for it. So, why don't I just go ahead and pray. We'll thank God for the food and then we'll just go ahead and eat. Girls, y'all did really well in here today. Paying attention and behaving. I appreciate that. Daddy was long. Paul was long one time preaching and a man fell out of the window because he fell asleep. Unfortunately, Paul went down and touched him and he got up unhurt. That was a miracle, of course. But you guys didn't fall asleep, so praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank You for the Word that's been spoken this morning. I pray it was a blessing and I pray, Lord, it was spoken in truth, Lord. If I said anything that was less than true or reflected a mishandling of God's Word, God, I pray You would forgive me and that You would manifest the truth to us, Lord, as Paul manifested it to the Corinthians and claim to do so. Lord, protect us, Lord. May we never ignore Your Word. May we never ration it and fail to teach the whole counsel. God forbid we would ever corrupt it. And oh, Lord God, may we never rest it or reject it. May we cling to it in these troubling days as more precious than gold and silver as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, as more important than earthly food, Lord, as a great treasure that we want to share with other people. Lord, bless the food that You've given us. May it bring us nourishment and strength. We lift up those prayer requests that have been brought before Your throne today. And Father, we thank You for the freedom to meet here in a home. Lord, to be able to exist and worship You in simplicity, apart from the corruption of American churchianity. May we be faithful to live Your Word, not to be hearers, but doers of it, even in days of persecution. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.